This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie talks with Fritz Karsch about being a stylist for Martha Stewart, about why he owns an antique shop, and about what it means to be a collector. People ask me, well, when does a collection begin? For some reason, I say five. You're not committed under five. You can still get out of the idea, but once you have five of something, it's suddenly starting to birth as a collection. Here's Debbie Millman. It seems that Fritz Karsch collects everything. As you enter his antique shop, you'll see stacks of mixing bowls over here and a silver ornament-encrusted Christmas tree over there. The store is packed to the gills and feels on the verge of spilling out the door and into the street. He's been called a maximalist, and he says of himself, I'm not afraid of the material world. Over the years, his job titles have included stylist, editor, and creative director. Until recently, Fritz was working for Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia. He helped found the collecting department at Martha Stewart Living Magazine and was the editorial director of Collecting. He's just written a book with Rebecca Robertson titled Collected, Living with the Things You Love. He's here to talk with me today about his book, and about some of the objects that he loves. Fritz Karsch, welcome to Design Matters. Well, thank you for having me. Fritz, I read that your inspiration is Mr. French from the TV show Family Affair. Is that true? And oh, so, I think the question was the context of fashion. Yeah. Ah, so what about Well, and Mr. lifestyle, yeah. <laughs> so tell me about yeah. what your fascination is with Mr. French and why your attire and lifestyle are so much influenced by him. I remember as a kid watching that show and being fascinated by how he ran a tight household and that he took great pride in running a household. I find the domestic arts fascinating and that he always looked quite crisp and pulled together. Didn't he? And that he was still like full fashion while being full figured. So I thought that was a great inspiration that it didn't matter how much you sampled in the kitchen and how large you got, you could still look like natty and crisp. And he did always look natty and crisp. And And so do you. And he secretly ran the show. Yes, yes. So I asked Lisa Congdon, artist, illustrator, and author of the blog, A Collection a Day, Mm -hmm. to supply me with a question that I should ask you today. And her answer surprised and delighted me. Mm -hmm. She requested that I ask you, about your beard. And for our listeners that might not know what it looks like, let me explain. You wear your beard chest length and divide it into two horns. Lisa and I both want to know the history of your beard. Well, it's just an accident of nature. My only goal was to not have to shave every day. (laughs) I mean, I had a beard when I was quite young, but I just really got sick of shaving. And I thought it was another 15 minutes I could gain in the day for something more entertaining. And as it grew, it just had twins and it did it on its own. So it wasn't at all intentional. It's just the way it went. I wish I had one point, but I ended up with twins one morning. So I just had to go with it. Now, I've seen a couple of photos. I've never seen you with a close-cropped beard, but I've seen a couple of photos. Mm -hmm. How often do you trim it? I don't. Ever? No, just the mustache so that I don't bring most of my meal with me out in public. Let's go back in time a bit. You became a collector at 11 years old, and I've always believed in the benefits of hunting and gathering. What were your first collections? 
well, my father's family had stayed in the same town for many generations. What so town was this? Princeton, New Jersey. So there were all these different branches of the family and all these eccentric uncles. And one branch of the family's business was driveway macadam. And they were hired to build a road through the woods sort of out of town to start a development where there had been an old farmstead. And when they got not that far into the woods, they discovered the original 19th century dump from the town. And it was just all amazing artifacts that survive being underground since the early 19th century. So we became junior archaeologists, and my uncle told me about it. I was probably about 10, and we would go up out of town to the top of the hill and spend the whole day just investigating. What were some of the amazing things that you found? Everything was amazing to me. I mean, I learned about the history of the pharmacies in the town because all the bottles at that point had embossed names. I learned about all the different dairies in the town and all their logos and names. I was just fascinated by. And I also learned from that that there was, like very current now with Ebola, there was a big – some kind of plague in the 1840s that had everybody in hysteria and they believed that you could get it through your dishes or you could get it through your household goods. So everybody threw, haven't out, changed much, everybody threw out everything. Wow. So suddenly whole Collectors dining dream. rooms and pantries and kitchen cupboards were being like just intentionally dumped in perfect good condition and you started to find that kind of stuff. It was just very curious to me and that sort of sparked it and that's where I began. And so you ended up going to the Tyler School of Art. Did you want to be an artist at that time? I mean, I was very fortunate in the town I grew up in had a very good public school system. And the high school was quite aggressive, but it was really focused on getting the students into Ivy League or Seven Sister schools. And so it was a very rigorous program of endless long-term papers with assigned topics with syllabubs and footnotes. And it made me insane. So my one goal in higher education was to never have to write another term paper. So an art school seemed like one clever way of not having to. And I did have a natural aptitude for drawing. So it was something that I was always interested in, the aesthetic world. So what did you want to be when you graduated? What was your intention? Oh, well, of course, you know, if you're dedicated, once you get immersed in like freshman foundation at an art school, then you're going to become a famous artist, right? You're going to like reinvent how you live and what you do and how the world thinks and you're going to reinvent aesthetics. It's, well, if you you're know, Fritz Karch, you do no, that. No, most earnest not art students all have that goal. And then slowly it sinks in that like winning the lottery is probably easier than becoming a famous successful artist where you can financially support yourself. So then you have to figure out if you want to make art, how you're going to fund that life. So your first job out of school, I believe, was at a type foundry. Is that correct? I can't remember quite. I mean, I painted houses a lot was the practical way. I always loved paint. And so that was something that was easy to do. And so when you were at the type foundry, though, were you making type? Were you setting type? Somewhat, yeah. I mostly worked. I mean, this is the dark ages, the stat. Oh, God, so did I when I was in, in my first job. Yeah, and you would hand cut corrections. I mean... My first job in New York was working at Abrams Art Books, and we used to hand-cut the corrections to the captions to Jansen's History of Art. I mean, it's um, the wax machine. Oh, my God, please. I'm swooning. Yeah. (laughs) So I read that you started working in commercial photography by taking sick days from your type foundry job. (laughs) Yeah, I was working. Help out your friends on their photo shoots. 
Yeah, I had luckily met several people that worked in the commercial photo industry, and the computer was taking over the whole world of graphics. And I realized that a lot of my enterprise commercially would have been just sitting in front of a monitor for 12, 14 hours a day, which had beyond zero interest for me. So, and I was being really pressured to learn all these software programs and embrace the computer, and I had no interest. So I was trying to figure out what's the next thing. And my friends started saying, well, come help me on the shoot. They were really getting successful. They were crazy busy. Of course, everything happens at once in the freelance world. It's feast or famine. And so they'd be like, come on, come on. And so I would take off a day and go and help them on a shoot. And I found it really interesting world. And so helping turned into styling. You know, I was given an ultimatum that either I like embrace the marvelous computer and become a tech nerd or move along. So I moved along. So then I really had to figure out a new path. And what made you decide to choose styling? Well, it was just I was fascinated by it. It was lucrative. I mean, as a practical person, it was extremely lucrative. And I loved the freedom that it wasn't full time, you know. From what I understand, there were three types of photo stylists. I had to do a lot of research and mm-hmm. preparation for the show to really understand the world yeah. of styling. So there's a food stylist, a fashion stylist, and still life. And you really yes. found your love in the still life. Why is that? Well, you know, food styling is its own amazing skill in itself. And you really have to have a culinary background and have really immersed yourself in, like, the passion of food. And with fashion, it's the same thing. Fashion didn't interest me so much. And I also found it very – the few times I got roped into doing both at one time, I found it very frustrating that people aren't very honest about their sizes and then you're the victim. (laughs) So I find that inanimate objects are much more truthful in, like, their metaphysical existence. And it made it for a much smoother and more pleasurable day. I have a quote here that I found that you said, um, and I love it, inanimate objects don't lie about their size like celebrities and models do. Yes. (laughs) So how did you get your first job with Martha Stewart? Well, my one good friend who was a very successful stylist, he was getting so much work, more work than he could do, that we made a deal that he would take all the jobs. I would ghost a lot of them. It was under like his auspices. And that then we would just split the profits and that way between the two of us, we could do twice as much work and he would take work that wasn't intellectually stimulating to him but quite financially rewarding. And that was going really well. But then things change as they do in any industry radically in terms of dates and times and we would get stuck with multiple shoots on the same day when people would move schedules. And one time we ended up with I think three in the same day. And so – One of them happened to be an early Martha Stewart shoot, and we had our list, and I was sent to unpack and get ready for that shoot. And I get there, and somehow soup and iced tea had turned into, like, roast turkey, and overnight they had completely radical. So all the props were inappropriate, and the photographer was kind of in a pickle, and I just said, well, don't worry. I don't live that far. I'll go home and get what we need. And we'll figure it out. And the creative director at Martha Stewart had come to the shoot, and she was puzzled why the man she had hired was not there. Was that Gail, by the way? Yes, it was Gail Gail Towie. And then she wanted to know who I was, and she realized, like, you know, it's her job to find young, eager talent at less cost, right? So then I was that answer. So she started to hire me directly based on realizing there was this whole invisible army within the photo industry. And you were with Martha Stewart for nearly two decades and really helped create the visual language that has been 
growing and copied and and oh, well, you're very kind. Thank you. I mean, I think there were all these amazing famous stylists that had left the independent world and gone there to birth it. Susan Spungen, who was the food editor, is an amazing artist. Hannah Millman had she was still sort of part time, but she really formed like the whole nature craft. And Stephen Earle, who had a great background in interiors and decorative arts. The three of them were already there and had really established, I think, the early signature style with, you know, definitely with a filter and guidance of Martha. I mean, she has very strong opinions and was, you know, birthing her own aesthetic daily. How do you find all of the props and all of the glasses and all of the different elements that you need for these shoots, given that you need so much stuff? It was easier in those days in that there was more stores, like bricks-and-mortar stores. I mean, there was this amazing store on Park Avenue called Mayhew, and it was where all, like, the fancy uptown ladies would go to get their, like, bridge notes and coordinated napkins for their luncheon parties. But in the basement of that store was this enormous archive of Every quality tabletop company represented everything Limoges made, everything Waterford made, everything Baccarat made, everything Wedgwood made. And they had full inventory of everything because if you're Lady Bird Johnson and you're having 10 more people to dinner that afternoon, they could send over 10 more place settings of anything. And so they were an enormous resource because they would rent. They were thrilled to get money to get the thing back. So you could go there and borrow all the samples of every hall buy you'd ever want, any egg cup you ever wanted, anything that was in production. In terms of vintage, there used to be an enormous antique industry in Manhattan with actual stores. And then thirdly, there's a enterprise called prop houses. Some of them are more for television and television sets. Some are more for movie production. And a lot of them are strictly just for the still life photo industry. And you go to there and they'll – I mean it's unbelievable – has the internet or eBay changed the industry significantly? Dramatically, yeah. dramatically. Well, and also just real estate in Manhattan has made it impossible for a typical retail merchant to really have a thriving business. You know, it's all now giant chain stores that are using it as a loss leader to be represented in that neighborhood, but they're not making any money. And independent people that, you know, there's so few old-fashioned landlords where you could have a relationship long-term, like a family relationship with your landlord, and he would be kind to you, and you'd have your shop in the same place for 35 years. That's very rare in Manhattan anymore. So all the antique dealers have had to leave Manhattan A lot of them have gone to small towns like Hudson or Lambertville, New Jersey. Many of them just sell online exclusively. It's really changed dramatically. You said that Martha is an accumulator, not a collector. Why and what is the difference? Well, I think a true collector is fascinated by the whole history and output of a particular topic. They want to know, like, what are the best, what are the rarest, what are the least interesting, what are the most common. They kind of sort and build a outline of what that topic is for them personally and just the history of production in the world, where an accumulator finds one thing they like and just keeps accumulating. Like Martha loves yellowware mixing bowls. So a great collector could collect yellowware mixing bowls, but they'd be interested in how rare it is to find them marked and that are they American? Were they from an Ohio, California or New Jersey pottery? What were the earliest ones? What were the latest ones? 
Martha just would like wanted the biggest ones and certain patterns, and then she would have 38 of exactly the same thing. But she was less concerned with their rarity or their history as she was with their functionality. You recently left Martha Stewart, but you've also been an antiques dealer for the last 30 years, where you sell what you've called elderly and recycled objects of functional use. Your store is in the Tomato Factory in New Jersey, which is a co-op of antique dealers offering a distinctive array of fine quality antiques and collectibles. And it is in a real tomato factory. Why did you start the co-op? Well, it actually all happened right when I saw it's all the computer's fault again. I saw what was happening with the computer taking over many industries, and I was like, oh my God, I need plan B and plan C. And when I was fascinated by styling, I also noticed quite quickly I don't see a lot of elderly stylists. Like, this does not <laughs> seem like one of the great professions, like doctors or architects where the elderly are revered and at the peaks of their careers, it seemed like it was a young man's game. And I thought, well, this is really fun, but what am I going to do next? So I found being an antique dealer as challenging and fascinating as being a great artist. Like, how does one do this? So what is it about these elderly and recycled objects that is so intriguing to you? I'm fascinated in the vintage world, how superior the quality of materials and craftsmanship is vibrant. It really is a superior place to the modern world, except in obviously there's brilliant young designers and industrial designers making fascinating things, but they're made really in a cottage industry in an old-fashioned way, and they're quite expensive. But before, you know, you could buy amazing tabletop that was mass-produced and beautiful. Just, Fire King. Yeah, you know, and that opaque glass, that's almost a – to get that to pour evenly in a vertical object without, like, white haloing is almost – it's a lost art. No one can do it because when jadeite became so popular again and they started making it in Asia, it's fascinating to see the inferiority and the inconsistency of the product. It doesn't in any way get close to the old original stuff Corning made in the 50s and 60s. In an article in the New York Times about you and your partner – Architect David Mann, the writer in the article, described you as Fritz Karsch, a maximalist of stunning dimensions. What do you think he meant by that? Probably just the sheer volume of interests that I have. I mean, there's very few things that don't interest me because people always say, oh, you collect everything. And that's not true. There are huge areas that I have no interest in at all. For example? Well, single-edge weaponry. I find like militia. There is, you know, the history of the Civil War and battle, and I have no interest in tools of war and weaponry. And I actually find dolls quite frightening. Like any kind <laughs> of recreation of like the human form, I really have no interest in it at all. I'm fascinated by where the dolls lived. I love the doll furnishings and the doll houses and the doll rooms. And, and do you the collect those rooms. things? I do like miniature chairs and tables, yes. Not in any organized way, but there's two examples of things I really don't want to know about or have any interest in. In the same New York Times article, you stated that without David, you would be Citizen Kane. What do you mean by that? Oh, in that there's a sense of, you know, economy and moderation. 
Well, he's sort of the opposite of he's sort of a minimalist in, in totally. Min- yeah. yeah, he's okay. not. A, he's not a sort I mean, of. He, he does appreciate the material world. He does love beautiful things, but he doesn't have that hunter gene. He doesn't have the instinct to always want to like inquire and investigate in the same way. Randy O. Frost, a psychology professor at Smith College and an author with Gail Stachetti of Stuff, Compulsive Hoarding and the Meaning of Things, states that hoarders have an intensive perceptual sensitivity to visual details and see patterns in objects which they are both delighted by and trapped in. What do you think of that? I think that's a great, accurate description. I mean, that's almost a job description of what makes a great stylist. It's true that you're much more in tune with, like, the voice and the personality of an object as opposed to a living thing like an animal or a person. You're more hot-wired for it, I think. I read that you see a giant world hiding behind something like a rolling pin, an enormous universe within one little tool. Do you ever feel like these objects have souls? Absolutely. I mean, I personally am drawn to things that are handmade and hand-loved more than commercially manufactured. But that said, in old-school antique dealing, it was really about the surface and the aging and the the path of the material that made something exquisite and beautiful and why – you know, it's such an abstract thing why one one thing costs an astronomical sum of money and something doesn't. And to the untrained eye, they look identical. They're both chairs. They both have arms. They're both made out of the same wood. Why is one a million dollars and one a hundred dollars? And it really has to do with this incredible path that that object took. Sometimes it has to do with its celebutard, like, oh, George Washington sat in it. But a lot of times it really has to do with the conception of the person that made it, the care they went into choosing the materials, how the materials have thrived and changed over centuries. And just the wear and tear of daily life can make something exquisite where it wasn't when it was brand new. Do you feel like these things sort of speak to you or do you sense they're sort of presence, this sort of a spirituality in them? Yes, they definitely have a soul. To me, some objects really sing and others don't. I understand that your predilection is for collecting things that are in one of four categories. Broken, large, heavy, and useless. What are some of your favorite collections? Well, rocks would be a good example of Mostly useless, heavy, and and can be large. There's three in one, <laughs> right. and damage. No, I mean broken. that was just yeah. me being sassy, but it really is. Those are four great opportunities for shopping because if you're a very veteran antique dealer or practical collector, people are all chasing the same thing, and they don't want damaged things. They don't really want to deal with heavy and large things because it's a huge obligation how to transport it. So right there is the birth of opportunity. Those are the things that are always sitting around that haven't been gobbled up in the dark. The rejected humble thing. things yeah. that need homes, so like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. Exactly. I saw a videotape of a presentation you made where you talk about Josiah Wedgwood, the 18th century English potter who founded the Wedgwood Company. And you marveled at how even in the 1700s he was able to 
create 67 stoneware color combinations. One of our faculty here at the Master's in Branding program at SVA is a brand historian, a man named Richard Shear, and likens Josiah Wedgwood to Steve Jobs. And he thinks that Wedgwood was the Steve Jobs of his time in his ability to innovate with design and how he uniquely displayed his wares in his stores and wondered what you might think of that. Yeah, I totally agree. It's actually 97. 97. And that's just Jasperware. That's just one kind of output that he did. There's 97 different color combinations. You know, he was a great chemist. And so he figured out how to, like, innovate, how to make colored clay bodies and how to do all these technical things that nobody had ever really conquered before that I think a lot of it was inspired by the East. You talk about what you refer to as little masterpieces, for example, tablecloths, and you've described as tablecloths encapsulating the history of typography and map making, which I love. I love the idea that this humble device that we don't even think twice about has the whole history of our species essentially embedded in it. Yeah, I mean, I fantasize that every great creative person that has the impulse to make, you know, the lucky ones got these jobs. And you can see that these incredibly talented artisans and designers were working in these textile mills where it's like they've got, you know, a huge order for Macy's. And, you know, (laughs) they're told we need Christmas tablecloths. Well, suddenly they make these amazing things. Well, let's talk about your new book, Collected, Living with the Things You Love, which you co-wrote with Rebecca Robertson. First, congratulations, Fritz. It is an extraordinary book. The photography, the writing, it's just gorgeous. What was the motivation in putting this book together? Oh, once again, it's like everything. Like I'm trying to find a new career to hide from the computer. We were being (laughs) stalked by different publishing houses to do a book, and I didn't really have... I mean, I love books and revere books, but I think it's such an enormous enterprise. It was terrifying to me. There's this one amazing author, Nancy Goins Evans, I think. And she worked on this one book that I love that is about the history of the American Windsor chair. I think she worked on it for 25 years, the research to make one book. That is dedication. And to me, that was an amazing masterpiece book. So I was taking it quite seriously. We're going to do a book. Oh, my goodness. And I know... In the business side of modern publishing, it's not simple anymore to get time and money to do something that comprehensive. So I was quite resilient, but several publishing houses were inquiring. And then it did occur to me that Martha has taken a lot of the history of her content, especially in food, and made amazing, more permanent books that become a resource for people. And all the work we did on collecting stories, which was a really fun thing for about 10 14 years, was not in any form. It had never been published by the Martha Stewart Enterprises. And I thought, well, it would be fun, some of this beautiful stuff that we're so proud of that I thought was kind of evergreen, to get it in a more permanent form. So that's why I agreed to do the book. And then, of course, everybody wants new and the next. So we started adding to it. And the next thing I knew, it was sort of half and half. So you start off the book by stating, as style editors immersed in the world of collecting and as lifelong members of the tribe ourselves, we have been privy to some of the most intriguing assemblages of ceramics, textiles, and glass. We've had the honor of visiting connoisseurs of all stripes to learn about their passions and how they live with them. What we discovered, surprisingly, was that most owners of incredible collections don't live in a manner that best showcases their assortments. 
That really surprised me. Why is that? Well, I think on a practical level, you're a curator if you're a very serious collector, and it becomes an enormous responsibility. You feel like the custodian because value comes in when rarity exists. And so they become almost afraid of their own collections. Like a lot of people I know, it's just in safety deposit boxes because they're afraid of – they don't want to be the one that it was damaged or destroyed if it's lasted this long, and it's so precious. So what do you say to people like that? Do you encourage people to use their collections? Are you a proponent of actually taking out the fine china and using the good linens? Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to do it every day and you can be careful about it, but yeah. The structure of the book is a really interesting structure. You didn't focus on the actual collectibles themselves, so dish towels or chairs Mm -hmm. or any type of silverware. Mm -hmm. You focus on the type of collector and collecting styles. Why is that? I mean, we toyed with many different kinds of ways to organize the content, but we had had a conversation back in the days with Martha. She wanted to do a comprehensive, but she, you know, being the Leo, she always wants it the biggest. And when I would have conversations with her about being thorough and comprehensive, I mean, it's insane. It would be like an encyclopedia of 28 volumes. I was going to say the volumes. I'm not that young. I'm not. And I don't know if there's a market for that. I mean, Time Life did a a series like that in the 70s. It was interesting, but it it gets more generalized and more for the novice than for. So the information isn't so specific or useful in a lot of cases. Um, And Knopf did this series of books in the, I think, the late 80s and 90s by Topic that are amazing, these little comprehensive field guide books that are beautiful. But once again, they're always picking the best examples of something, and a lot of it becomes more museum quality, not relevant to anything you're ever actually finding in your own home if you're not from some illustrious generational privileged family. And so I got to this idea. I thought it might be more universally idea if we went by kind of personality impulse. So what are some of the examples of those personalities? Well, we ended up with 15. I mean, we had many more before, but just time and money, we couldn't achieve some of them. And so we have like the miniaturist. We have the maximalist. We have the neutralist, the machinist, the artificialist. The um, containerist. That was one of my favorites. Well, it, it goes back to that DNA wired impulse. Some people like... They collect in these funny, instinctive ways that they love vesseling and vessels. I know somebody that just loves pictures and what it represents. And I thought that was an interesting way to focus on this because then you could go through and say, oh, it's like looking at the horoscope. Like, oh, I'm am I this person? No, I'm not that person. Oh, I could be this person. And it might help you organize your impulses. I love that you included the pragmatist. I thought that was a bit of an oxymoron, a pragmatist collector. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, I think that's – I'm a good example of that because I find it fascinating form and function utility. I like utilitarian things that were actually conceived for a use versus, you know, the more lofty fine art where it's about a conversation of ideas or ideals and it is a object or an idea, but it's not really meant to – do anything other than be a commodity for rich people and adorn people's houses as a status symbol. You stated that while your primary goals of assembling the book was to reveal the thoughtful beauty of and decorative principles behind various collections, 
You also wanted to celebrate the wonderment of the vintage world, amazing handicrafts, materials, and objects. And you have a number of oddball collections in Collected, things like people that collect pumpkin stems or fruit pit carvings or John Milkovich and his beer can collection, which he began in 1968 by stringing beer cans to the roof of his Houston home like wind chimes and kept going until the entire clapboard house was covered, a feat that took an estimated 50,000 cans. Apparently, this also reduced his energy bills. But now the house is a museum. The book includes the UK artist who has collected more than 30,000 tea bags and makes art out of them. Tell me what you think is the most oddball collection in the entire book. Well, I think the tea bags would be a finalist. I mean, we didn't want to scare people too much, so we just put a few examples like that. I mean, there's a very famous industrial designer, what's his name, Tucker V. Meister, who collects yes. he collects toothpaste tubes from all over the world in all their different states of used and spit. And I remember going to his bathroom once, and it was this amazing equator around the room of hundreds and hundreds. It was like the history of design. And typography in the history of the world. I mean, one of the things that didn't make the book that I loved were these ladies in Russia that saved just the plastic bottle caps on modern soda bottles. And they had done these mosaic patterns and encrusted the outsides of their dashes and created furniture and everything you could imagine. Curtains, the entire house was plastic bottle caps in the most beautiful, inventive way. Coca-Cola has just done something with their bottles where they're encouraging people to recycle the bottles in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And they've made all these attachments that you could put on the actual bottle instead of the cap Mm -hmm. to create like a paint can or Mm -hmm. any number of things. And I understand that you're appalled by planned obsolescence. And for our listeners that might not be aware, how do you define planned obsolescence? Well, my understanding of it is that when they first made light bulbs, they didn't burn out. But it's not a business. You know, how do they make a business out of this electricity? So if the light bulb burns out, you need to buy another. Right. And so I think that became this very American idea of, well, this sense of pride of making things well and making things to last change. Like a toaster from the 30s usually still works and is still fine. may have asbestos in it. But um, this whole idea and the landfill and the abuse of our natural resources is what I am appalled by. I have a coffee grinder that I've had since I was in my 20s, so it's over 30 years old now. And it's just at a point where I feel like it's weakening and I'm really scared because I know I'll never be able to find another plug-in coffee grinder that will last another 30 years. Well, if you go to the right thrift store, you can. Yeah, I'll have to ask you to help me, You'll find some friend that passed on and had theirs in their kitchen. The last thing I want to ask you about is some tips, some tips for collectors. You have a number of different ways in which you help people that want to get started or want to better showcase what they have. So what are some tips for collectors that you could leave our listeners with? Well, don't be afraid of the collection and don't be afraid. You know, it's not really about economics at all. I mean, a collector does not need money You don't in need any money to build a collection. All. What no. do you need then? So it's more really kind of soul-searching, what is it about this that you like? Why are you drawn to this? Is it just the color? Is it just the material? What is it? And how you build your own philosophy of what you like about this topic. And then don't be afraid. You can always edit. It's not like every find or every purchase is the ultimate. You're stuck with it for the rest of your life. 
you know, can always donate it to a good cause and start again. <laughs> People ask me, well, when does a collection begin? For some reason, I say five. You're not committed under five. You can still get out of the idea. But once you have five of something, it's suddenly starting to birth as a collection. I want to ask you one more thing about the notion of collecting. When you find something really rare, how do you feel? In some cases, afraid of it. Some cases, like, am I ready to take on this responsibility? Or even the project of if you don't want to have ownership or possession, how to shepherd it to the correct place. It's a big responsibility in a lot of ways. Fritz, I want to finish this show by quoting your dad. When you were younger, you said that your father gave you one good piece of advice. If you're really clever, you should be able to find a way to make money doing what you really enjoy because you're going to have to do it for a long time. And you added, for once I listened... And so I wanted to end the show on this really inspiring quote from a truly, truly inspiring person in front of me. So thank you very much, Fritz, oh, for being for having me. Design Matters. Fritz's book is called Collected, Living with the Things You Love, and it is magnificent. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainy Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.